This is Making It Up, a weekly culture news podcast focused on analyzing and debating whatever comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Eugene Can, and my co-host is Sharice Poon. The format of this podcast is a light catch-up at the start, followed by two main items of news, one chosen by myself and one chosen by Sharice. We pick our topics every week from the Make-In Briefing, which is an email we send out that's filled with current news, interesting links, and more analysis on culture. On Making It Up, we talk through the two things that we're most interested in and then try to come to some kind of conclusion, whether it's on the state of culture, media, tech, food, anything in our modern times. If you like this podcast and would like to do something to support us, the one thing that really helps is to share your favorite episode with a friend. My exciting news. This is the dorkiest thing. I bought rechargeable batteries. Oh, yeah. Last week, Sharice had a bit of a scare because she ran out of batteries halfway through recording. Yeah, and they were my only two remaining batteries. So then I actually reused previously old batteries. I didn't tell you because I was like, I think it will last. Well, put it on the old Expensify. So then immediately after that, I went on Amazon and I bought Eneloop Panasonic Rechargeable. This is not sponsored. I'm just telling you. Okay, that's cool. How was your weekend? So we're obviously recording late this this week because I was traveling. I was in yeah, China. Yeah, no, I mean whatever I did. Maybe this we should weekend. start with my. Should yeah, we start with my weekend? No, my weekend is okay. way less interesting than your weekend. Tell me about Intersect. All um, right. So Thursday morning, I flew up to Shanghai for Intersect. How to describe Intersect? This is what I believe to be the story. So first and foremost, and there's a bit of like quasi industry beef, but oh well, who cares? <laughs> a few years ago. There was a thing called Yohood that launched and it was between Yoho, a streetwear publication in, in China. And it was done in conjunction with Edison Chen. For those unfamiliar, he's a pretty well-known movie star, pop star, rapper, I guess kind of like a cultural maven in a way. Yeah, that's And bad. Yohood was a unique retail and consumer experience where they took a traditional fashion trade show model, but they flipped it. So they kept the same sort of like foundational components of having brands there. But what changed was instead of more of a B2B environment, they brought in consumers. Yeah. Basically, you had these big, huge pop-up stores all in a big conference space. Yeah. You know, this was a big success. Everyone that came over from the West, like all the American, North American, Western brands that went over like, oh, this is a pretty dope concept. It also showed the power of the consumer. I believe that... This was the catalyst for ComplexCon. I believe it. Potentially. Yoho's still going on, but then Edison left because I think somehow he got screwed over by Yoho. I mean, and he started his own thing. All we can say is that the organizers of Yohood and Edison had some kind of falling out. And then Edison started his own trade show called Intersect. That took way too long to explain. I apologize. But yeah, so basically it's kind of like ComplexCon. In a way. Interestingly, this year you were at ComplexCon and Intersect. Do you want to talk about the difference? Yeah. Actually, that's a good point I can touch upon. I would say between all these different experiences, like now there's upwards of four, five, maybe. I don't know. Who knows in the future how many of these conferences countless, will arise. Countless trade there's shows. There's going to be more. I don't countless, think it'll be countless because it is a heavy lift. Trade but, show, you know I mean? you conference have, combinations. But you have HypeFest, you have ComplexCon, you have Intersect, and you have Yohood. Well... I was talking to Mr. Bailey yesterday and he was telling me about SIF. Mm. I'm familiar with that. Yeah. That's in Scandinavia, right? Yes. Anyway, you talk about the difference between ComplexCon and Intersect. Yeah. So I think ComplexCon this year felt 
super sketch. Like I just felt some shit was going to go down at any moment. Like I guess the energy was good in that sense, but also, I don't know. I always felt like something might just kick off. I mean, you saw fights on Twitter, people like fighting over a spot in a lineup or something. But then I think what was interesting at Intersect overall, it was way more chill. It wasn't that it wasn't busy. It was just that everything was more orderly. Mm-hmm. And obviously being in China, like the likelihood of a bunch of kids fighting over sneakers is probably a little bit more reduced. Not to say it doesn't happen. I would um, say the chances is low. I, would I also think say also security the, is probably better. Yeah. But I think the general affluence of Intersect was incredibly high. I'm not here to compare it so much as that. Like it's cold in Shanghai right now. It's like one degree centigrade. And there were so many people, whether they're real or not, I don't know. But there's a ton of North Face Supreme jackets. Wait, wait, wait. I'm confused if they're real or not. Because you don't know. Like, you I mean think the that merchandise or the people? I'm confused. The, no, the people wearing like the North Face Supreme jackets. Still confused. Do you mean you don't know if the North Face Supreme jacket is real or you don't know if the person is real? No, the jacket. Okay. Your previous yeah. sentence was confusing. It made it sound like you were saying all of these people are fake like not authentically there. Oh, I mean, I'm not even going to make that judgment call, but I think it's more the fact that I saw so much of it. And I think overall, the biggest difference too was that it seemed as though everyone wore a lot of marquee, super recognizable streetwear in the sense that like every piece was some sort of very notable piece of clothing. Yeah, It wasn't like, hey, it was brands sprinkled that you were all familiar with. It was that jersey. It was that jacket. It was that pair of shoes. What's interesting is like I read a, a tweet on Twitter and this girl that was there, DJ Toy, she was saying that essentially along the lines that this whole fuckboy hype culture exists everywhere. And I think that in general, yeah, it does. But I think the dosages vary from region to region. And I think it's something that is interesting too because... I think the socioeconomic conditions also seem to be the biggest difference currently in terms of how you see different pockets of streetwear or street culture. I don't think that it's just an economic difference. This is weirdly just really similar to the same conversation I had yesterday. But we were also talking about how in China, it's not just that they have wealth, but that the wealth is relatively new and then their openness, the countries being open to different Western influences or any outside influences is also new. So that influx means that when it comes to apparel, people are still trying to like find their ground. Like individual consumers are still kind of working out what their own fashion culture looks like. Maybe they won't though. What do you mean maybe they won't? Because the thing is, is that as a collectivist culture, the fact of the matter is people are okay looking like the person beside them. No, like I saw I think, a lot of people. No, I think it will emerge. I think right now it, that's the way it is. But I think in a couple of years, it will look very different. Uh, it, it'll be tough. Because I, I think that, you know, with maturity comes that sense of individualism. But then there's also the underlying culture behind it. Like, for example, let's use... I mean, I it's mean, not going to be... For you, let me ask you this. China let me ask you this. huge. Yes. Let me ask you this first. Do you think that that individualism is predicated on financial stability and like generational wealth? I honestly, whenever you ask me questions like this, I feel like I'm being set up. So I'm just curious. I spend, my, like, brain ener- is- I spend my brain energy thinking about, okay, if I answer this question this way, this is where Eugene's argument is going. 
That's how I feel when you ask questions like that. But I need you to explain why you think that it will change. I do think it's based off of stability. Again, I don't think it's the entire country, but I think there is a certain sector of, and you would say the same thing. There's a certain sector of young, creative Chinese people who with the security of, you know, having money and in the future not needing to worry about money, won't just look at copying what's existing, but thinking about how can they contribute. But the thing is, is it's you're under the belief that individualism is valuable or desirable. And I think individualism, depending on how this thing plays out, may never be as valuable as it's seen in the Western world, which is why I think... I don't know, man. You really... I You tend to harp on collectivist cultures more than Oh, I no, do. I don't though. No, it makes it sound like it's like negative. Same, it does sound negative. It doesn't because I'm not, I'm not under the pretense that collectivism is negative because I think that if anything, it allows us to activate around big ideas. Explain yourself. At, so when it comes to the belief that, hey, everyone is in line, and I don't say that in some pejorative, like, you know, you can't think for yourself, but if really you have so many people that are for the cause, it's so much easier to move as a unit and rally around an idea. Okay, but you're also saying, or I've thought that we were having this discussion about whether collectivist culture means there's less individual creativity and therefore the country won't innovate in terms of what their own identity looks like because they're content looking at the West. Or maybe they're just content of the fact that individualism isn't as valuable. Because like I said, but, the, my, the, but I wanted to talk about whether China is going to find its own ground. That's different. Got it. Whether they, I think they're, a, they're okay, yeah, slightly maybe the overlapping. Enti- maybe the entire country will move as a unit. Like you said, yeah. okay, huge yeah. generalization. But what you mean is like a majority of the population will move together. But I want to imagine that together they're going to move away from what the U.S. or Eurocentric ideas are. <sighs> Disagree. I think that we're also in a in a world where digital culture is so dominant, where it's it's likely that you'll have the same trend replicated. I mean, you can see it right now. We've said this before in this podcast. The whole the whole Williamsburg coffee shop aesthetic is rampant throughout the world, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes, I agree with that. But I still think that in the next couple of years, we will see something come out from China that is uniquely theirs, and that other people yeah. will get on that trend. I mean, well, this is something we're let's put a timestamp on this one, and we'll come back in ten years. I don't know why. I don't know why we enjoy trying to predict the future so much when clearly it's like logically it's impossible. impossible. Yeah, logically yeah. impossible thing for us to yeah. do. All right. Moving on. Okay. And this is the last thing from Intersect, but it's funny because you were in a conversation with Mr. Bailey and who did he want to introduce you to? Helen Kirkham. And I had just met her in Shanghai and I was like, oh yeah, you should definitely meet Sharice when you're back in London. And lo and behold, everyone knows each other. Yeah. And it's so wild because it was two independently occurring conversations. In the same like 24-hour window. Yeah. You didn't know I was meeting Daniel Bailey. I didn't know you were meeting Helen Kirkham. And then they both referenced, you know, each other. So weird. Weird. All right. It's Sunday late afternoon here. Let's get right into it. 
My topic this week is Cambridge Analytica use fashion taste to identify right-wing voters. For people who have forgotten since the news cycle moves so quickly, what is Cambridge yeah. Analytica again? So Cambridge Analytica is an analytics company which builds profiles of people. And the reason why it came under fire for this whole Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal was because there are quite a few of Facebook sort of apps that were pulling information from different users that were beyond what, you know, all these users had given and or approved. Yeah. Yeah. And so what happened? Of people were affected. Yeah. Like, I think it was upwards of like 80, 90 million people. But the thing that's most interesting about this was late last month, Christopher Wiley, who used to be the director of research at Cambridge Analytica, he appeared at the Business of Fashions conference, their their yearly conference. Yeah, and Wiley and was the whistleblower. Like Wiley yeah. brought the public's attention to the fact that Facebook and the company he was formerly at were doing this. Yeah, and he basically leaked these internal memos or these memos to The Guardian yeah, yeah. in the UK. Okay, so he's at BOF conference. Yes, and he explained how Brett Bart, Steve Bannon, mm-hmm. notorious right-wing leader... And someone we've spoken about actually on this podcast before in the context of the New Yorker Festival. So Steve Bannon and his Brett Bart, with the help of Cambridge Analytica, used profile constructions to help build an alt-right insurgency that started around clothing and musical tastes. This story itself focuses more on the clothing side, but it's interesting because certain brands such as Wrangler and L.L. Bean, which are in my eyes, very iconic traditional American brands. Yeah. They were often associated with conservative mindsets. Likewise, a brand like Opening Ceremony out of New York and founded by, I want to say, immigrant Asian duo, as in their families have like an immigrant story involving Umberto Leon and Carol Lim, who actually I ran into them at Intersect. They were seen as more appealing to liberals. And I think that's also... You know, if you're not familiar with either of these brands, like if you put them side by side, it's very clear which one has a more liberal aesthetic to it. There was one part of this passage that I thought was probably the most interesting, impactful, and it was assessing value systems and goals and priorities via the clothes people wear has been a part of professional life for years. The dress for the job you want adage is an expression of fashion profiling. Calling someone a Gucci person or a Celine person is fashion profiling. Opting for Levi's over Rag and Bone, which is another denim company, makes a statement about associations and history and opens one up to fashion profiling, albeit in a manner that generally leaves much unsaid. Cambridge Analytica preyed on that human reality via algorithm using data from the Facebook profiles of more than 50 million users without their permission. So what was also interesting as like a further exploration of this was they were able to take people's buying patterns and things that they had tracked in regards to purchases. For example, if someone bought an infant onesie for a toddler or baby from Hillary Clinton's campaign website, it was a sign that potentially this person might be influenced by emails about maternal health. And likewise, if someone bought a beer mug, he or she might respond to emails about saving manufacturing in America. Essentially using the consumption of material goods to inform what we know about people's political leanings. Yeah. Which in my head makes sense. 
just yeah i think this just does a really good job of crystallizing it it seems to make sense i guess what wiley is saying that it's not just an anecdotal thing that in your head how someone dresses is indicative of what they might stand for but in terms of data it proves to be true yeah so my personal thoughts two really strong reasons why this was interesting to me number one the politicalization of fashion, including the recent talk about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, the youngest congresswoman ever, and her choice of fashion attire. This is one thing we talked about on the briefing a few weeks ago. I don't even know if it was as just, far away as a few weeks ago, but yeah. she had just arrived in D.C. and then a photo was taken of her and someone commented, oh, does this look like the jacket and coat of a young woman who's struggling, trying to kind of insinuate that she has wealth and doesn't have like those bootstrapping backgrounds that she talks about? Yes. Yeah. There's that. Obviously, the Colin Kaepernick thing too with Nike, that's another fashion-driven sort of political narrative. I feel like that's kind of different. I don't know why. I guess it's because that comes from a brand. Like, yes, I agree that that has fashion and politics in it, but it feels a little bit different from what we're talking about right now because it's like brand initiated. Totally. And um, the second reason why this is interesting too is what role do brands play in the future? Because I think there has been a subset of people that have seen brands as something that have diminishing powers when it comes to the internet. Oh, wait, maybe this is why you mentioned Nike and Colin Kaepernick, because are you trying to suggest that brands could play bigger influential roles that are not just about putting clothes on people's backs, but are about influencing the direction the country moves in? Potentially, but I think that's not a new idea for me. Like I almost don't get excited talking about that. Yeah, because but I, I'm more, I mean, I'm for, more excited. For anyone who's a regular listener, we know that this is what you expect from brands. Yeah, I'm more excited about the fact that this almost is a massive. I don't even know. It's not like I think brands are all of a sudden going to die tomorrow, but it's more like in the digital age, how do brands establish themselves? How do they create value, and how do they stand out? in a sustainable way. Like, I think this is interesting to me because suddenly we recognize what brands are really good at. And this is sort of this very overt, subtle signaling. So that's kind of like a, it's two things, right? It's like, it's in your face, but it's also subtle as to the traits it implies. The thing is, I cannot imagine any of the brands you mentioned previously buckling down on the political suggestions. Opening ceremony would, but I think that's just them. But I don't think L.L. Bean and Wrangler Wrangler would make a thing. Also, okay, this is an aside because one person I met this past weekend at Intersect, she had a pair of Wrangler jeans on, but she wasn't American. So what's interesting there is that there's... Like it doesn't apply con- outside of the States. Exactly. There's a context around it, right? Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. So like so you I think be that's conservative outside of the States and then wear opening ceremony. Like it loses, It's like drinking Stella Artois in for you. the UK. Yeah. What does that mean? Wait, I don't understand. Oh, okay. I'll try to use 30 seconds to tell this story. During the London Olympics, Alex Malin was in the UK and he got invited to an event to hang out with a bunch of people 
And he went to go buy a six pack of beer. And, you know, coming from North America, where Stella is like a classy European beer, he rolled up with a six pack and people are like trolling him like, oh, who brought this? And apparently Stella Artois is associated with domestic abuse in what? the UK. Yes. No. Yeah. And he didn't know that because obviously oh US, even coming from Canada, Stella Artois is seen as a classy, expensive Eugene, beer. why couldn't you have told me this story like three months ago? I don't know why you've been ordering Stella like every single time. No, because this is like a real repeat of something that happened to me, but I didn't get trolled, but it might've been because there were not enough Brits at the dinner I was at. All it right. Was like a, Let's it was take like a, a quick mix. time out for you to tell this story. <laughs> completely off track. We had a studio potluck, right? And so everyone has to bring a dish or like buy beer and chips and stuff like that. And so me and another Asian girl, not from the UK, went to buy beer and we're like, we actually did have this whole discussion. We're like, we really don't know what beer to get because whatever we like might not be what they like. And so it was really this conundrum. I don't know what is socially appropriate. Anyway, I think we wound up buying... A mix? I actually think we wound up buying a mix because we couldn't make up our minds and got Stella, Peroni, and Guinness. Oh. But it was really a situation where I have no idea what the correct thing to do is. Okay. So while you're telling that story, I did a little bit of research. This is on Google. It's one of those things that are right directly on the search page. And the question is, why is Stella known as wife beater? Stella Artois used to market itself under the slogan, reassuringly expensive, but became popularly known in Britain as the wife beater beer because of its high alcohol content and perceived connection with aggression and binge drinking. So what happened was that Stella Artois actually reduced the alcohol content in 2012. Oh, interesting. Enough of this. Let's get back on track here. Okay. Yeah. No, this has been a complete sidestep. While you were Googling that, I Googled opening ceremony (laughs) politics. And you are right that Humberto and Carol would embrace their political leanings. In 2016, right before that presidential election, they held a political show during fashion week as their fashion presentation. Yeah. It is interesting to see how the power of brands increasingly will have some sort of sentiment. You know, what was interesting too, like I was talking to some people that worked at Adidas and I was just curious. And I've actually heard about this too with Nike of potential categories people fall under based on the shoes they might wear around the campus like around the headquarters, yeah, especially recently, like let's say that, you know, Kanye West took a side and he became Republican. What did that mean if you were on campus wearing Yeezys? Mm. So it's kind of interesting like that we've gone to this point. And I don't know if I've told you this. So I was with Vic a few weeks ago and we came to the realization that politics and brands have a really strong intersection as of late because politics create a very simple binary outcome like you can kind of tell immediately whether you're with it or you're not so you automatically push people down a certain funnel or into a certain direction by virtue of what you represent on the political spectrum Mm, yes i agree and i think that's an unfortunate situation actually now that you bring that up 
it is really simplistic. I mean, we're talking about North American politics, but I do think a lot of politics in the world today have become very polarized. And it's probably not good for society in general that we can divide things being one or two, you know, as in this binary option. Yeah. It It shouldn't be so simple to be like Wrangler equals this, opening ceremony equals that. There should be... In an ideal situation, there would be greater variety. Yeah. Or does it mean that brands need to be a bit more subtle about it? Mm. Because I, sh- what I think about it is like in the reality of your day-to-day life, what you care about actually might be divided along different party lines when it mm-hmm. comes to economics or social issues or you know what as you said, this is almost healthcare. like a purely american sentiment too because there's only two parties right i mean what's it like in the uk how many parties are there oh i don't Not know you, you need just to know. really put me on the spot but yeah yeah if you don't know that's fine well okay in Canada, but the, in uk right now it's polarized as well because it's like were you for leave or stay yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. which is different guess, but still yeah. there is this like divide i'm thinking back like to my time in Canada and if I could associate people along those lines, I don't know if I could. That's probably a good thing. Yeah. Well, there's also a lot more parties in Canada, like political parties. Well, I think about, okay, what does Wiley say that changes what we know, right? Like how does having this data from millions of users affect what we already knew about fashion and politics? Ah, that's a good question, actually. I like the way you've taking it that that way i think it's more of a a sort of categorization of fashion and it further crystallizes what tool it plays in society in terms of building and creating identity for people or maybe what's interesting actually you know what i don't know because is it fair to say the aesthetical design of things is what impacts whether, mm, I don't know, I don't think that's a good argument either of whether like, oh, if you're conservative and your designs never change, then you're a conservative brand. But I think for me, what it does do is create a very real validation of the power of fashion. Actually, what you just said before the validation of fashion is interesting because we don't really know what are the associations these users have with these brands. The statistics we have are correlational. They might vote this way and they buy Wrangler. But we don't know, do I buy Wrangler because of the way it looks, because of the material it uses, because of the history of the company? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It would be interesting to find out actually what is going on in people's minds. Yeah. I mean, for me, L.L. Bean seems as though it makes sense as a brand that would appeal to people that want value, that want like a, a durable functional product. Okay, yeah. Um, I mean, that's Wrangler a is actually Like it could be value yeah. for your money. And there might be the socioeconomic side of it, of like right. LL Bean is cheaper than Patagonia. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it all sort of ties back into like everything I talked about earlier around, you know, Intersect and like the socioeconomics of streetwear too. It's like what brands within the streetwear sector or industry do you personally consume? We've been using Google a lot today, which we don't usually do when we're recording. But I was Googling LL Bean and 
I think is kind of popular in Japan. Yeah, LL Bean is quite popular as one of those like legacy American brands. Which kind of reinforces what you say about brands losing their political connotations outside of the country they're born in. Yes. Yep. Yep. Totally. All right. Happy with that? I think that ultimately this is something that maybe isn't that debatable. Like there's not really anything to debate because it's quite factual. It's more about a discussion around its implications. The one thing I will say though, we will probably get to a point where there's political burnout in terms of brands and there will be a space for brands that just have no political affiliation because people don't want to be associated with certain things. I think and what I only it is, say this. Yeah, yeah, you go ahead. I say this ahead. only because if things go too far, then people also get burned out. It's just natural, right? Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that when it comes to political affiliations, there is people are getting exhausted. But however, yeah. I do think that brands will buckle more down in terms of causes. I don't know another way to put it, but it might be, I think a lot of it will be environmental. I don't think that's going away. Mm -hmm. They will still pick bigger themes to put themselves behind, but it won't necessarily be conservative or liberal leanings. Yeah. I mean, sometimes things just happen. Like the whole yellow vest thing in Paris. Right. Like we never brought that up, but. Ooh, do you want to get into it? Mm, no, maybe not. I think that if people are interested, it's like, I think it has a lot of the similar sort of undertones as to what we've discussed. What should they Google if they're interested? Yellow vest Paris riots. Okay. That's I mean, enough. You that's your homework. No one can see my face, listeners. but I have a inquisitive look on my face. Well, I mean, that's helpful because sometimes people want to know about things, but they don't actually know how to begin finding it out. All right. My subject for this week. The hard news behind my subject this week is that Amazon's second headquarters is going to be split between two locations. This is pretty much confirmed. One, it's going to be in Long Island City, which is across the East River from Manhattan in Queens. And also it's going to be in Crystal City, which is in Virginia on the outskirts of Washington, D.C. And each location is going to house 25,000 employees. Interestingly, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, said this fall, I'll change my name to Amazon Cuomo if that's what it takes, because it would be a great economic boost. And it's this idea that a lot of cities were competing for Amazon's attention because they want Amazon to move into certain areas. And this idea is that when companies like Amazon move into areas with less stimulation, like less going on, then it brings jobs and it brings greater economic success. So the article that we're talking about that we're drawing on is questioning whether that economic success is good for the area, because most likely it brings gentrification with it. And the success that does come from a company like Amazon moving in, who is it for? You know, who benefits from Amazon? A mm -hmm. um, couple of more facts that I looked up. There's actually I had to rely on a couple of links to pull these together. So it's not all from the original article. It's not just this idea that gentrification is going to happen. Because of Amazon headquarters moving in, public housing projects are not happening that were previously planned for that area. So 
in a very tangible way, Amazon moving in is displacing affordable housing. And also Amazon borders this public housing project called Queensbridge Houses, where the residents make the median income of 15,843 USD. And there is no suggestion that the jobs that Amazon brings are going to go to these people. Mm -hmm. And that's like some of the questions that are being raised, you know, like, okay, Amazon says they're going to come to New York and create jobs, but who is going to get those jobs? It doesn't even mean that those jobs are going to New Yorkers. Amazon might might just just move in. in. Yeah. People that they hire from overseas or from elsewhere in the country. Yeah. So the question that, Alexandra Staub, the author of this article, is asking is like, is gentrification ethical? Which kind of brings it into a really philosophical slant. You actually picked this article for the briefing. Is there a reason you picked this particular one versus like Business Insider, which which gives you like the Amazon HQ news in a really factual way? You know what? Sometimes when these things drop on a factual level... Then the actual talk about the news is maybe less interesting unless something like pops into my head. And the reason why I picked this one was because I have a friend that I know who's kind of going through the same thing where his landlord was going to raise his rent. And it's kind of like interesting because we also live kind of in the same neighborhood too. And you kind of see sort of the trajectory of it where you move in before everybody else whether it's cheap rent because, or there's a vibe to the community and then all of a sudden it starts to pick up and things change, right? And I thought it was interesting because now I'm kind of seeing it firsthand in regards to what gentrification looks like. Because I think that undoubtedly you're always going to like hear about it, but it doesn't always affect you directly because I might be the person that's going to a gentrified neighborhood to, you know, go to a restaurant or check out a shop or something. Yeah. It does mean something different when I know somebody or it's probably going to affect me as well. But I've always thought of myself as being part of a gentrifying wave. Under what pretense? That's actually interesting because I was thinking about that too. I'm like reevaluating the places I've lived in in my life right now to think about when I have felt part of gentrification. And I just don't feel like I've ever really had claim to... Being in an area before rent prices went up. Um, I guess being a, I don't want to say victim. Um, being on the receiving end of gentrification. Yeah, sure. Being on the receiving end of gentrification requires you to have lived in an area for a long time. Yeah. Because you yeah, have to be Yeah, does gentrification count if you moved before things popped up and that was like, let's say a year after you moved in? No, because then I think you're no. an early adopter. Okay, got it. Yeah, I think there actually is some sort of use in putting parameters or terms around this. Well, because I feel like in order to be on the receiving end, it requires you to have lived somewhere for a long period of time mm-hmm. to count as the people who are then being affected by the gentrifying wave. And just the reality of you and I and the way we've lived is that we're moving frequently. So Mm -hmm. we don't have roots somewhere to then feel like, oh, Amazon's encroaching on us. Yeah. Yeah. Metaphorical Amazon does not have to be Amazon itself. It's incredibly challenging because does gentrification in itself 
become a byproduct. Cause I'm, I'm looking at it from a, from different perspectives too. Is that like in Hong Kong, gentrification sometimes happens differently. And is there a difference in gentrification when it comes by virtue of commercial opportunities versus like residential opportunities? And the reason why I split those up is that in a place like Hong Kong where rent is generally quite expensive, mm-hmm. gentrification in terms of commercial opportunities is a little bit different. It's because if someone wants to take a risk on something, it's easier for them if they do it in a place that's a little bit more affordable. Mm-hmm. So if you have a cool idea or concept like a coffee shop, instead of going to like Central, coming to some sort of bowl, Sham Shui Po might be a little bit easier. True. Right? True. Yeah, I mean, there's that coffee shop that's around the corner from the office, right? And like, that's an example where they couldn't have done that concept elsewhere. Or maybe they could have, but maybe they didn't have access to the funding to do it. Right. I think no, the one I thing that you, is, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. But then on the residential side, it's a little bit different because residential property development is kind of like this icky thing. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Because gentrification that's caused by different things, right? So what you're describing in Hong Kong is that small businesses or independent creators are pushed out of expensive areas. And so they naturally just look for wherever the rent is cheapest. And they in turn make the place cool, which then draws in property developers. Which then brings in commercial developers, Yes. Versus that was kind of what I was going this news that we're at. talking about, which is very top down. The people at the top of the state of New York saying, we want Amazon to move in here. Yep. So this feels like this, as in this news that I've been talking about, feels like very much a governmental responsibility. You know, they are giving the tax incentives and the tax breaks for Amazon to come in. And the question is, how are they then going to take care of the community around that area? Yeah. Because, I mean, they've caused it. it. It's not like the situation you are describing. Yeah. Which is more free form. Actually, that's a good way of putting it. I think that you've successfully broken it down. I mean, maybe I'm missing something, but I think we've successfully broken down different gentrification situations. Mm-hmm. And potentially looking at it from that perspective allows you to kind of analyze and see what are reasonable courses of action or at least things to try out. Yeah. Because it's true. It's like if the government is facilitating someone to come into their place, their area, then it has to be sufficiently prepared to ensure the kickbacks and the growth opportunities reflect those that were there from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I think that's where the ethics come into play. I agree. I agree. I think that maybe that is sort of the blanket statement for everything because it does also need to come into play with like residential developers too. Mm-hmm. The article does talk a little bit about the private property managers that take care of the land that Amazon HQ2 is building on. But in a way, I don't think of them as so responsible because they're private property managers, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, Bill de Blasio and Andrew Cuomo, they're elected officials. They've made certain promises, which theoretically means you can hold them responsible, or at least in practice, what it means is you can elect them out of office. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, there really isn't a solution towards gentrification, is there? 
Yeah, I've been thinking about what does this mean on a personal individual level, but I really don't have an answer for that because even if I see myself, even if I see myself as some kind of wave, whether in Hong Kong or in London or whatever city, I am following cheap rents. Like it's not really within my control. It's not, I mean, how, how do I, I'm not going to pick a higher rent place because I don't want to be part of a gentrifying wave. Of course. So I don't, I don't really have a solution for that because I think that the reality of the economics is that, you know, it's supply and demand, right? You know what? The individual responsibility when it comes to ethics is to be supportive of your local community. I think but what that's does that what, look like? Like supporting your local community. I, I say supportive of your local community. I don't even think it means, it, I don't mean like give money, but at the very least, it shouldn't be complaining about what's there. You know, like, oh, the garage mechanics downstairs are so noisy and they take up so much space and we're going to die one day by a metal pole running through our heads. Like that's not productive language, it, which seems mm-hmm. like such like a drop of water in the ocean, but... That's like one thing I can think of. I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways of looking at it too, because it's also one one thing that the government can help out when it comes to gentrification is like just the actual acquisition of real estate and or like rent control, right? Yeah. I'm not well versed on this enough to go any further, but it's just something that came to mind. It's like, hey, if things are actually changing around the neighborhood, how can you maintain that neighborhood vibe? But also like, if the retailers coming in are just inherently more expensive because the new community can support it, then that also changes. We've mostly been talking about Hong Kong and the U.S., but there are some things that governments can do in any situation like you've described. They can also require, like let's say Amazon moves in, they can require that a certain number of jobs be unionized. There are terms to those sort of deals. But obviously the other situation that you've been describing in Hong Kong is way less controllable. Mm-hmm. All right. That's yep. it from me, yeah. I think. Actually quite enjoyed today's recording. Yeah, me too. All right. That's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, visit us at Macon.com. M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and wherever you prefer your podcasts. If you like this podcast, the best thing you can do is to review us on iTunes or share an episode with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at eugene at making.com, E-U-G-E-N-E at making.com and Sharice at making.com, C-H-A-R-I-S at making.com. We love hearing your feedback and just seeing what you guys are up to. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.